Hey guys, welcome to the View from the Front podcast, a fast-moving military defense news podcast. For those who don't know, my name is Stan R. Mitchell, and I'm a prior Marine and journalist. Every week, I primarily do three things. First, I work to highlight what our military troops are doing around the world, while also trying to better educate Americans about looming hotspots and foreign policy news you absolutely should know. Second, I attempt to unite our country and remind us of how lucky we are to live in America. Our division and animosity toward each other is dangerous, and I want to do my small part to remind us that more unites us than divides us, and that most Americans are good. Finally, I always share plenty of motivation and wisdom at the end of each episode, because I want to do my small part to help encourage you and lift you up. Life is certainly hard, and I think it's fair to say all of us need all the motivation and encouragement that we can possibly get. Every Thursday, I produce this podcast, so if you haven't signed up yet, I'd appreciate if you did. All episodes are ad-free, and it's completely free to sign up and join the email list, or you can help sustain and support the show for $5 per month. Subscribing will also get you the View from the Front Extended, which is a newsletter that I put out. You can find out how to subscribe from my Substack page, which is stanrmitchell.substack.com. Again, that's stanrmitchell.substack.com. And with that out of the way, let's get started. This is the April 27th edition of The View from the Front, and we're really glad to have you here. In this episode, we'll be discussing several topics, which you probably haven't seen in the news As I always say, our media does a terrible job covering our military and the potential hotspots, so I'm hoping to fill this void. But in addition to ending with some awesome motivation and wisdom, which this week seems especially good, but we will cover today several big stories. First one will be uh, U.S. Special Forces did recently evacuate U.S. Embassy staff from Sudan. We will go into some detail on that. That was a big mission. It's something our military trains a lot for, and they're very challenging. There do, however, remain 16,000 American citizens in the country of Sudan. It's obviously a country that's in the middle of a civil war between two generals. Uh, Many of these are dual nationals who do not work for the government. And I'm going to go into a bit about that, how that's already become political, We'll also provide an update on what's currently happening since the U.S. evacuation that happened this weekend. And then moving from there, we're going to move to Ukraine. We're going to talk about President Zelensky. He's uh, had a talk with China's President uh, Xi Jinping. We'll go into that a bit. We'll also go into a little bit of news from one of the leaks that we've talked about for two or three weeks now that shows that uh, Russia can fund the war in Ukraine for another year, despite those tough economic sanctions. They found a way to work around a few things. We'll also talk about really some juicy tidbits from a campaign assessment of the upcoming potential spring offensive that Ukraine could launch. This is public information stuff, but uh, this campaign assessment is really, it's really interesting, and we've had a lot of generals in the past couple of months or so really downplay the Ukrainian offensive, but I think when you hear this, it's gonna it's gonna potentially open your mind up to what I think I've been leaning toward. As I've said, that I'm a little bit more optimistic than the generals. So we will also talk about Ukraine's Azov Brigade. If you recall, long-term listeners will definitely recall. They were involved in the heavy fighting around Mariupol about nine months or so ago. They held out for a long time. And it will also have in that update some news regarding some prisoners that were taken by the Russians. I wanted to drop that in there as well. And then we'll move away from Ukraine and stay on the topic of Russia for just a bit longer. And we will talk about that Russia's influence is actually expanding a bit in Africa as the Wagner Group, which is, of course, their private military contractor, they have increasingly been spreading their influence across Africa. And one of the leaked documents has highlighted that, as well as some things that both the U.S. and allies in Africa are willing to do. And I think you will find that very interesting. And then, of course, we will end, as always, with plenty of motivation and wisdom which, like I said, is really good this week. 
I'll try to do all this as quickly as possible, and I think it'll be a pretty fast and fun show. We begin the news portion with that news about Sudan. Read just a few paragraphs about the operation from the Associated Press. U.S. Special Operations Forces carried out a precarious evacuation of the U.S. Embassy in Sudan on Sunday, sweeping in and out of the capital with helicopters on the ground for less than an hour. No shots were fired, and no major casualties were reported. With the final embassy employee out of Khartoum, the United States shuttered its diplomatic mission indefinitely. Remaining behind in the East African nation are thousands of private American citizens. U.S. officials said it would be too dangerous to carry out a broader evacuation operation. Battles between two rival Sudanese commanders had forced the closing of the main international airport and left roads out of the country in control of armed fighters. The skirmishes have killed more than 400 people. So what I just read to you was some of the early reporting that happened. And I do have to kind of give uh, some props to the Department of Defense because they actually released a press release about the operation. And it went into, honestly, quite a bit of detail that initially had not been a part of the news. So I thought I would just share parts of that. The Department of Defense is saying that U.S. forces evacuated just under 100 American staff at the U.S. Embassy in Khartoum. Of course, Khartoum is the capital of Sudan. And one interesting thing from the press release as well is that the Department of Defense had deployed troops and capabilities to the country of Djibouti. Interestingly, if you just do a simple search online for how how long does it take to fly from Djibouti to Sudan, it's seven hours in a plane. And the press release from the Department of Defense did disclose that three Chinook helicopters, those are the big ones with the double blades, actually flew from Djibouti down to Ethiopia where they refueled and then they flew another three hours into Khartoum. So if you're not keeping up with what I'm saying in very broad terms, helicopters are slower than planes, obviously than jets. So this was probably a very long flight of three Chinooks into uh, obviously the adjoining country of Ethiopia and then from there they flew another three hours into Sudan and so if you're thinking about a military operation you have to worry about things such as what if one of them has mechanical issues can't fly where do you put the additional folks so I'm sure there were other contingency plans in place but if they removed a hundred folks on three Chinooks unless there are other things that were not disclosed that is a that's that's pretty slim on the amount of aircraft supporting the operation. So there's perhaps part they're not telling us, or perhaps they had to launch this thing a little faster than they expected, because I feel like they would typically have more aircraft than that. Now, if you're one of those military guys or gals listening, and I'm wrong about that, definitely let me know. I'd love feedback on that. I have never ridden in a CH-47 Chinook. I have ridden in a CH-46 numerous times when I was in the Marine Corps. That's the smaller version, but I did a little research on the 47, and if you look online, you'll see anywhere from up to 55 troops to 33 fully equipped to as low as like 20, depending on the amount of gear. If it's anything like the Marine Corps, and the Marine Corps, they might show that like a amphibious assault vehicle might hold, you know, some crazy number if you looked it up online. But in reality, when you had all your gear, you just couldn't quite get that many people in. So I'm not sure exactly how many troops you can put in there. Obviously, some of these were civilians when my Marine unit evacuated folks out of Albania back in 97 on the exact same kind of mission. We flew them from land to ship. Each civilian was only allowed like one piece of luggage because you have to keep up with how much weight you have. Now, in that situation, we withdrew almost a thousand or a bit more than a thousand, but it was like 900 Americans And then when you counted the NATO ally countries like the United Kingdom, Italy, France, Germany, we evacuated a lot of citizens from those countries as well as a courtesy to our allies. So we evacuated a bit more than a thousand. But we held that perimeter for several days. And in this case, I think the situation in Sudan was a lot more uh, 
I guess, less stable and more dangerous. And so it sounds like they did a one trip in, one trip out, according to the press release and the stuff you read. That in itself is what is leading to some of the folks who are a little frustrated with the Department of Defense. I will say, I always try to avoid politics, of course, but already folks are saying, you know, why did we abandon 16,000 American citizens in Sudan? So a few things about that. Let's let's just talk about that. And let me set it up by saying that there was a particular tweet on Twitter that kind of kicked all this off by a an account that's at end wokeness. And I've got it in the source notes. And the the tweet is, why is nobody talking about the fact that Biden just abandoned 16,000 American citizens in Sudan? So here's the thing. Situations like this, they can spiral very quickly. And first of all, the United States had helped last week arrange a temporary ceasefire. So they got that in place. And even more complicating is in situations like this, they can obviously get better and improve. And these folks don't want to leave until they know they have to leave. Because in many cases, like in the situation where we evacuated a lot of folks in Albania, a lot of those folks waited too late because they had homes and property there and cars and family and they have friends there. They're living there for a reason. Many of them were business folks that had small businesses or had sought business opportunities there. So a lot of times people as a, you know, just as a general rule, generally humans are optimistic. And so you keep thinking it'll get better. There's going to be a ceasefire. There's no need to pack everything up and flee the country and leave everything. Uh, for instance, when we did evacuate all those folks from Albania, these these people were allowed to leave with one piece of luggage. So they had lived there for years. They had everything from appliances to homes or places they had rented. You think about how much you would have if you lived somewhere for a few years, and then it's all gone, and you're scared for your life, and you got kids crying. These are horrible, horrible things to even take part in as far as these operations. So it's very hard to pin all the blame on the United States when we had a very limited presence there. We had arranged for a ceasefire and then things got ugly, obviously very quickly. And so once those, once the situation on the ground began to descend into chaos, they went in and pulled out the U.S. embassy folks that were working there. So about those 16,000, a couple of other things. First of all, and I've got this in the source notes, there's a long list of warnings and updates about Sudan that the State Department released. So before you go listening to someone who's talking about what we should or shouldn't have done, at least go click the link. There are date timestamped sections that there are warnings, there are cautions. Just go, just kind of take your time, scroll through it, read those. And remember as you're reading them that the Department of State never wants to upset other countries, particularly countries that are allies. Sudan has uh, is a country that we've tried to keep a foothold in and try to keep some kind of relations with for a long time as we've tried to stabilize the place. So you're always very cautious to say, all Americans, grab your stuff, run for your lives, get on a plane, get out. Because when you do that, you increase the panic and you really can, you know, quite quickly, at least seriously damage a country's economy. It goes without saying that you don't want a country to descend into complete madness because if you do, then at that point it could lead to large waves of refugees, you know, fleeing to neighboring countries, which can start to spiral. And then we have to spend even more money to help stabilize neighboring countries in order to prevent even worse instability and perhaps bloodshed. So, it's always a balancing act on not panicking and trying to keep a situation stable versus things that are actually happening on the ground. So there's there's that. It's just it's a very complicated thing and it's very easy to say why did we abandon 16,000 American citizens in Sudan? So again, these are not American government workers. They're not members of the military. There's nothing like that. This isn't like no man left behind. Many of these have dual citizenship, they want to be there. They're, the families they married into live there. So in many cases, they don't want to leave. In some cases, they are missionaries. Again, folks like that a lot of times don't want to leave. So 
it's just very easy to just say, hey, the Biden administration abandoned 16,000 American citizens, when in reality, it is way, way more complicated than that. Now, I'm certain there are some who do want to leave now. Again, a lot of times, and this is this is one of those situations where I, I, I always, I always, you know, this is the whole, like, you share some risk in the choices you make. You know, there's a, a, a mountain near where I live. And almost once a month or so, people go rock climbing, get stranded, or they do something silly. They don't listen to the warnings, and they end up having to do this multi-hour operation to help rescue these folks. Sometimes it's with ATVs or helicopters, and it's a pretty big cost. And there's a part of me that's like, you know what? I mean, like... You just sometimes get so tired of seeing this and people don't take the right precautions that you want to be like, you know, you do so at your own risk. Like, why do we have to spend, you know, X amount of money every single time to rescue people? But that's not the that's not the humane thing. That's not the kind thing to do. And so in situations like this, it's, it's just very frustrating that people make a political issue out of you know, why didn't you go help this family or go do this or that? It's like you want to help all of them. But a lot of times the very same people who are beating up, you know, the Biden administration for leaving for, quote, abandoning 16,000. They're the same folks who don't want to play the world's policeman who say, why did we have bases here or there? Why do we have so many troops in Africa? Why do we send foreign aid there? Well, part of the reason you send foreign aid is so that countries that are in Africa will assist us when we need assistance in, like, rescuing Americans who are there. For instance, in this operation alone, there were several countries that helped us. Djibouti, Ethiopia, Saudi Arabia, they were all cited by the Department of Defense for helping. And I'm sure others helped as well. So that's part of why you do aid to other countries, foreign aid. We don't even spend that much as a percentage. Everyone always tries to blow that out of proportion, but for the, the bang for your buck that you end up getting, it's really just, it's huge. And in fact, later in this uh, podcast tonight or today, depending on when you're listening to it, you're going to hear how allies in Africa are actually assisting us against the uh, Wagner group. But I'm getting ahead of myself on that. But it's just, to me, these are situations where you try not to make things like this political. The Department of Defense and the Department of State, they said they have been giving out some uh, aid suggestions on the best ways to evacuate, routes to take, etc. So I don't think the country of Sudan, the two warning parties, that is in their interest to try to take prisoners or do anything like that, that's going to lead to a pretty bad response. So it's not like they're you know, forces are trying to hunt down Americans and take them hostage. It's just this is the middle of a civil war, and there are people who are in a, you know, an unstable country who are in difficult situations. So hopefully that helps explain it. You know, honestly, it's, like I said, it's never simple. So if you've got someone who's just giving this really loud opinion about how they know everything and they shouldn't do this or you shouldn't do that, in most cases, they're just not very well informed. They don't understand that things aren't black and white. It's a very gray situation, and it's never easy. It's never, you know, it's never simple. And for the folks, if you just think about the type of operation that we just did in Afghanistan a year ago, think about how long we would have to hold open some type of airport or something to try to get out 16,000 people. That's a lot of troops going in there. That's a long operation, and there's a good chance it's going to lead to a lot of bloodshed. So it's it's just a it's a balancing act on what can or cannot be done, and what should or should not be done. And typically, people who don't know what they're talking about, they talk with high levels of confidence. They talk very certain about things, and the reality is, these are not simple things at all. Now, before we move away from Sudan, let me just give kind of an update on what's happening since the evacuation occurred. The most recent story I found, and I'm recording this at about 9 p.m. Eastern on Wednesday night, is that there is a ceasefire in place in Sudan, and there are hundreds of Sudanese who are moving toward the borders to leave, but many have stayed, and from the story that I'm quoting from, 
uh, was in the uh, Associated Press. wanted to double-check that before I said that, but uh, I'll just read one paragraph. Taking advantage of relative calm, many residents in Khartoum and the neighboring city of Omdurman emerged from their homes to seek food and water, lining up at bakeries or grocery stores after days of being trapped inside by the fighting between the army and a rival paramilitary group. So, there you go. For the moment, another ceasefire is in place, and obviously, we hope that the situation will stabilize and stay that way, and those who want to leave can make their way out, and those who don't want to leave, we hope that, obviously, Sudan stabilizes and can go back to some sense of normalcy. Just a quick reminder, if you love what you're listening to, please sign up for email notifications. It's free to do so, unless you choose to subscribe and support what I'm doing. There is an additional benefit to subscribing, which is you will get the view from the front extended. That is an email that comes out on Mondays that has just a quick summary of the latest military news happening out there. And again, that only goes out to paid subscribers. People are always asking me on social media how to best support my dreams, including getting out future books sooner. Believe me, the best way to support me is by signing up for a paid subscription. You can find out all the details through my Substack page, and you can support through both Substack, Patreon, or Venmo. Again, all those details are on the Substack page. But believe me, you don't have to do any of these things. I've already had incredible support and feel called to do this. So as long as I'm making enough to cover the time I invest each week, I'm not going anywhere. All right, enough of the sales pitch. Let's move to some Russia and Ukraine news. There were a few things I wanted to cover in that section. We'll start with Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, had a phone call, which was reported as, quote, long and meaningful, end quote. And it was actually an hour long, so that's that's a pretty long call. Uh, he had a long call with China's president, Xi Jinping. And as a part of the uh, one-hour phone call, they decided that China would work as a mediator to somehow see if they can't come about creating a peace plan between Russia and Ukraine. This will be an interesting thing because, as we've talked about in previous podcasts, Russia is probably getting to the point that it wants a peace treaty. It has taken thousands of miles of Ukrainian territory and its military is gassed and there is a planned spring Ukrainian offensive coming and Russia will likely lose a lot of ground. And we're going to go into some of those details about the potential offensive in just a few moments. But this is one of those situations where it's probably in Russia's interest to come up with some type of a ceasefire and a peace plan, but it is not in Ukraine's interest. Uh, Russia has shown several times in Ukraine alone that it will negotiate a ceasefire or some type of peace deal so that it can rebuild up its forces for a invasion at a later date. And in fact, the longtime listeners know that Russia initially seized the Crimean Peninsula back in 2014. It instigated fighting in the eastern part of, uh, of Ukraine in the Donbass region. And after that, after Ukraine began to respond and send forces, quickly Russia wanted a ceasefire until many years later, Roughly one year ago, in 2022, in February, they launched the massive invasion that they just did. They've now been pushed back, and they're about to get pushed back more. And so they want time to, they want a ceasefire so that they can rebuild their forces for whatever else they have planned. So I'm not sure how serious Ukraine will be about wanting to pursue a peace deal, but it is good that China has stepped in and talked with Ukraine, because if anyone could come up with some type of a political settlement, it would be China, since they are closely allied with Russia, and since Russia absolutely despises the United States, I'm not sure that Europe or the United States would do very well in any kind of peace negotiations. Let's move from that story to a story that the Washington Post had that, again, comes from a leaked document that shows that U.S. intelligence, U.S. intelligence believes that Russia can continue to fund the war in Ukraine for at least another year. 
that's a pretty big news because everyone has kind of wondered how those sanctions are starting to hit. The reporting says, and I'll read just a part of it. The previously unreported documents provide a rare glimpse into Washington's understanding of the effectiveness of its own economic measures and of the tenor of the response they have met in Russia, where U.S. intelligence finds that senior officials, agencies, and the staff of oligarchs are fretting over the painful disruptions and adapting to them. So Russia's finding some ways around those painful disruptions. I think it was a month ago we talked about how many, how much the exports had just dropped, the energy exports to Germany. It had dropped like 90%. We talked about that a month or so ago. And I wanted to read one other paragraph. This is key because we've all wondered what is going to happen to potentially to Putin. How does this all end? I wanted to read one more paragraph. And again, this is from some of those leaked documents from a couple of weeks ago. Here's this paragraph. While some of Russia's economic elites might not agree with the country's course in Ukraine, and while sanctions have hurt their businesses, they are unlikely to withdraw support for Russian President Vladimir Putin, according to an assessment that appears to date from early March. So that's probably not great news. I think all of us had kind of internally been hoping that at some point Russia would turn on its leader and put someone in who was a little less ambitious is probably a nice way of saying it. But as I said six or seven months ago, we reported on a potential leader who could replace Putin, and he was absolutely as brutal and ambitious as Putin. So it's one of those things you got to be careful what you wish for. So replacing Putin could be even more dangerous or less stable than having him there. But at least for the moment, intelligence for the United States believes that most folks are not going to withdraw their support in Russia. So that is an option that I think, like I said, many of us have possibly held out for, especially with some of the mobilizations that Russia has, has done, which aren't popular. But according to our intelligence sources, which are you know as good as any out there, doesn't look like that's going to happen. So that's something to keep in mind, especially with what we just talked about with President uh, Xi Jinping from China reaching out to uh, Volodymyr Zelensky. Let's talk a bit about that Ukrainian spring offensive that we are all waiting for. There were some really juicy tidbits in the recently released campaign assessment from the Institute for the Study of War. They are a nonprofit group that has really done an incredible job documenting the war. They constantly, almost daily, in fact I think it is daily, provide updated dates on where Russian forces are versus Ukrainians and who advanced where and they constantly are releasing these. And they recently released a, like I said, a campaign assessment that I wanted to share just two primary points from. I think that's probably all I'll get into. The first thing that I really just about that just it was mind blowing for me is this offensive could be twice as large as the one that took so much land around Kharkiv, which was in eastern Ukraine back in September 2022. And as a reminder, that offensive, which caught the Russians off guard, that that offensive recaptured 7,500 miles of territory for Ukraine. So again, this upcoming offensive could be twice as large as the one around Kharkiv that took 7,500 miles of territory back for Ukraine. So that is, of course, huge. I want to cover just one part of that, and then we'll get into the second thing that I thought was just very interesting. So the Kharkiv offensive was done by four Ukrainian brigades. On the other hand, this assessment thinks or believes that Ukraine will have a coordinated, multi-brigade, mechanized offensive operation of nine brigades. So we had four that the Ukrainians used when they took 7,500 miles back in, again, that was back in September 2022. You're going to go from four brigades to nine brigades. And what's not mentioned in that 
is that more than likely these brigades will be better trained and better equipped. They've had more time and they've gotten more NATO or Western equipment to use. The assessment talked about that additionally these Ukrainian forces should have, according to publicly released information of equipment that's been provided, they should have mine clearing capabilities, they should have bridging capabilities, they'll be able to conduct long-range precision strikes with the uh, high Mars multiple launch rocket systems, and so this could really be really bad for Russia. So instead of four brigades that took 7,500 miles, we're looking at nine brigades, and they should be better equipped. The second big thing from that assessment that the Institute for the Study of War released is that the Russians have deployed most of their frontline troops to the line itself, and they appear to have almost no reserves to deal with breakthroughs. Now, if you know anything about war, that is horribly bad news for you if you're on the Russian side. That is not how you fight a war. So, just one part I wanted to quote from that, or just a single sentence. Russian forces in Ukraine are operating in decentralized and largely degraded formations throughout the theater, and the current pattern of deployment suggests that most available units are already online, already online and engaged in either offensive or defensive operations. So whenever or wherever the Ukrainians hit the Russians, the Russians don't have units waiting to respond. So it's going to be very, very interesting, and I've been pulling my hair out, wondering and reading, trying to figure out what the Ukrainians might do. Because if you have nine brigades, do you do a single massive thrust to try to cut through some large section? Do you do four or five different smaller offensives? What do you do? And of course, one of the big goals is, and one of the big things that most analysts who've been following this war have wondered about is, does the Russian mind the Russian willpower of their soldiers break at some point. If you punch them in a bunch of different places, do they panic? Do they start giving up? Do they run? Do you just hit one place, cut off a bunch of them? So I would love to know what Ukraine's thinking and planning. Of course, most of that's hopefully still secret, but those leaks recently certainly didn't help any of that. But as I said in the preview to this at the beginning of the podcast, I know there have been a lot of generals who have told everyone to kind of tamp down the optimism about a spring offensive, but it's just very hard to tamp that down when you see how degraded Russian forces are, when you know the equipment that we've provided, when you know there's nine, you know, publicly reported nine brigades preparing for this compared to four on the last offensive. It's just very hard to not be optimistic, honestly. So maybe to some degree Ukraine's kind of downplaying what could happen so that people don't get their hopes up too much. I'm not sure. I will say also, if you remember from a couple of months ago when we reported on an interview that uh, Vladimir Zelensky himself gave, he said in that interview that the the war would be won through a series of just a small steps, you know, small attacks just here and there. So there may not be a massive offensive. It may be a very wide one. It may not be like a very deep, hard punch of, you know, nine brigades going through a single hole. It might be a bunch of smaller offensives intended to break the wheel. But again, there's only so many mine clears. There's only so many bridging capabilities of these tanks. So when you start to spread out, when you look at how, I think it's like 6,000 miles that the front line is it's very hard to do a wide offensive and they're not as effective as just punching through and really trying to panic the forces so not sure what will end up happening but ukraine will definitely have a lot of a lot of very strong armored fist to do something with and let's go in depth a bit on one final thing about that offensive which i did tease to in the beginning of the podcast ukraine's azov brigade is racing to rebuild ahead of this uh, spring offensive. The Washington Post had a wonderful story about the Azov Brigade. Again, those were the ones that were surrounded in Mariupol around that steel plant. And it is unbelievable how long they held out. And they helped save Ukraine because Russia had to divert so many forces to try to retake the steel plant. 
and they held out forever. But there were a couple of things I wanted to mention from that Washington Post article. The first one is that the Azov Brigade is hoping to recruit 6,500 new fighters. And a lot of Ukrainian young men and women, they're wanting to join this unit because it's very high profile. It did such amazing work holding out for days and days and weeks and weeks until they were told to finally surrender. So I did want to mention that they're aiming to recruit 6,500. There are a lot of young men and women wanting to join it. But additionally, one thing from that article, or two smaller points, I will say. There are a thousand of them that still remain in Russia as prisoners of war. And that's a much higher number than I thought. I, I thought it was in the hundreds, lower hundreds, like 100, 200, 300. But Russia has a thousand of them still as prisoners of war. And I think that's something we forget sometimes that as this ugly war continues, there are people who aren't even fighting that continue to be away from their family and friends. And, you know, war is always just horrific, even under the best of circumstances. But that number of a thousand shocked me. The second thing was, is that their commander, I'll probably botch how to say his name, but if I'm, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, his name is uh, Major Bodon Krotovich. I think that's how it's said, Krotovich. Uh, he's the interim commander of the Azov Brigade. And he's the one who's spearheading that rebuilding effort. But what's interesting about him is that he was one of them who was released from Russian captivity in the fall. He was interviewed for this story. And so this gentleman who held out forever, who surrendered, who probably was tortured, was a Russian captive, was released, and has clearly decided that he again is putting it all on the line to help liberate land from Russian occupiers. It's just an incredible story about, it, it doesn't even go in a story, but you don't have to know the story to realize that it's just amazing the tenacity and the spirit of these Ukrainians that this gentleman who's gone through all of that, I'm certain he didn't have to lead the unit again, but out of duty to his country and esprit de corps has chosen to again, lead a unit that he's already served in, in what will be, I'm certain, a very dangerous fight. Just very inspiring for me. I have said before that I find this Ukrainian defense and fight for independence as just so inspiring and just so similar to America's story. Ukraine broke away from Russia, just as the United States tried to break away back a couple hundred plus years ago from the Great Britain, and we had a, just an unbelievably long and hard fight of eight years to get our independence. Ukraine has done the same thing, and then when a Russian puppet was installed as, as the president, they, through mostly peaceful means of protesting, overthrew him. They've been invaded now three times since then, since Euromaidan back in 2014, and it's just an incredible... It's just, it's almost a saga. It's more than a story. And it's, you can't help but watch all this in real time, especially with all the things we have on social media, the videos and everything that's available now that wasn't around during our own revolution. It's just hard not to be a part of watching this story and wanting to cheer them on and support them. As I've often read elsewhere, I haven't probably said it enough, but this is not just about Ukraine. It's about Vladimir Putin. It's about a absolute tyrant who has invaded so many countries, has threatened so many countries, and what he's doing to that country and what we can do to help them fight to have what we what we take for granted for in our country all the time, which is freedom and independence. They've been fighting for it. And so, anyway... I'm on a bit of a tangent, but just seeing that story about Major uh, Baldon Krotovich, it's just very inspiring that someone who's been through all of that is again putting himself on the, on the line to lead this unit. All right, so we've got one final news segment, and this involves Russia as well. It involves their private military company called the Wagner Group. This story also is from the Washington Post, and it also involves one of the leaked documents. But the Wagner Group is moving aggressively to establish a, quote, confederation of anti-Western states in Africa as Russian mercenaries push instability 
while using paramilitary and disinformation capabilities to bolster Russia's allies, according to leaked secret U.S. intelligence documents. So again, this comes from the leaks. Its story was in the Washington Post. One really interesting thing about this leaked document is that the U.S. intelligence and military officials have been trying to figure out ways to, to, according to the article, to hit Wagner's network of bases and business fronts with strikes, sanctions, and cyber operations, according to the documents. Now, that's something you don't read about in the U.S. press very much, especially the word strikes, so that implies that there are some kind of actual, you know, combative-type operations happening. And one thing I wanted to share, and I teased this earlier, is how our financial and military support to other countries is like a force multiplier so often. In that story, there are, according to some of the leaked documents, African allies who are willing to take similar, quote, lethal measures against these small cells from Wagner in Africa. So I found that quite interesting that essentially we would help guide, maybe maybe lead is too strong a word, but that some of these African allies are willing to take lethal measures against some of these Wagner cells that are in Africa. And that's just one of the just one of the many pieces of evidence that shows that, you know, some of the foreign aid we do for 10 cents on the dollar, you can train an allied country's forces to help prevent the spread of a country like Russia and some of its cruel and corrupt ways that it destabilizes a region and puts in puppets. So it's just interesting to see this listed in that leaked document and reported on in the Washington Post article. But you guys know my position on foreign aid. It has changed. And I, I will say, I, I did used to be the guy that said, why do we have to be the world's policeman? But I think as the U.S. started to pull back, as I have watched Russia and China fill that void, and when you see the kind of, you know, the way that Russia and China operates and their human rights abuses and how they'll arrest people or make people disappear, when you look at what China has done in Hong Kong and with its Uyghur population, it's... These are not countries that are anything even like America. We're not even in the same hemisphere as as they are as far as human rights, how our countries operate. And so as you watch how they have operated, I have changed my views and evolved into seeing that, unfortunately, we can't completely withdraw back because when we do, the, it's just horrific what ends up happening. And Hong Kong is just a great example of the you know United Kingdom pulled back from Hong Kong and China began increasingly putting its tentacles into Hong Kong until it controlled it and it started arresting people and then it stopped having any type of freedom of speech and it's just you know unfortunately it's one of those things as as we pull back or as other countries pull back there are unfortunately countries out there that take advantage of that they are not like us they don't have the same ethics or the same goodwill that we do. And so I have changed my views because I have seen that, as I had read in the history books before, but I'd like to think that things were better, but so many times we have seen in American history that when we practice isolation, things like World War One and World War Two happen, unfortunately. And so you can only practice so much of pulling back before you start to see that, hey, history's repeating itself. There's a massive tyrant in a charge of a large country that's expanding its borders, attacking neighbors, and you can either try to deal with that while it's smaller and something you can control, or you can wait and deal with a much larger problem. And so my views have obviously evolved on the issues, and to me it seems like you get more bang for your buck if you try to prevent things in the early stages and prevent them from getting too large. So it's the old you know, an ounce of prevention beats a pound of cure, in my humble opinion. Alright, so on that light or heavy note, depending on how you want to look at it, let's get to some motivation and wisdom. So, I truly hope that these pick up your spirits, that they help revive your hopes, and that they help make you a better person. 
I uh, look I realized looking at the clock that we ran a bit long on the news but I think it was good news that needed to be covered this week so hopefully you got something out of it let's just begin on these first one your life is only as good as the beliefs you hold about it again your life is only as good as the beliefs you hold about it it's a good one next one take a small step every day that's a great one take a small step every day next one kindness is free sprinkle it everywhere man that's beautiful kindness is free sprinkle it everywhere man guys y'all know life is hard we can impact people so spread kindness next one mistakes are painful when they happen but years later a collection of mistakes is what is called experience that's another great one mistakes are painful when they happen but years later a collection of mistakes is what is called experience man that's another great one all right next one just because the past didn't turn out like you wanted it to doesn't mean your future can't be better than you ever imagined oh that's a great one isn't it just because the past didn't turn out like you wanted it to it doesn't mean your future can't be better than you ever imagined. I bet there's someone that needed to hear that. All right, next one. Don't worry about the things you can't control. Focus on the things that you can. The things you can control include your attitude, your network, your habits, your work rate, your physique, and ultimately your destiny. Again, the things you can control are your attitude, your network, your habits, your work rate, your physique, your destiny. Next one. The best way to find yourself is to lose yourself in the service of others. A great one. The best way to find yourself is to lose yourself in the service of others. All right, next one. Your journey will be much lighter and easier if you don't carry your past with you. Oh, that's such a good one, isn't it? Just let it go, right? Your journey will be much lighter and easier if you don't carry your past with you. Next one. Worry less. Smile more. Don't regret. Just learn and grow. It's another good one. Worry less. Smile more. Don't regret. Just learn and grow. Next one. If you wish to be loved, love. <laughs> so simple and so true, isn't it? If you wish to be loved, love. Next one. If you can't handle stress, you won't manage success. Again, if you can't handle stress, you won't manage success. So whatever level you're at in your life right now, if you're struggling with it, quit dreaming about something much bigger or better because you, you are struggling with what you currently are carrying. Learn to carry what you have already better, and then you can start taking more steps toward a bigger future. Here is the next one. Don't wait for approval. Not everyone will understand your vision. <laughs> so good. I've increasingly been doing this. I don't even bother telling people my dreams anymore because they honestly keep getting bigger and bigger. Like launching the political newsletter. It's like it wasn't enough for Stan to be an author. And it wasn't enough for Stan to be an author of multiple genres, which breaks every rule in the writing world. But Stan has to do a military podcast. And he wants to write a political newsletter too. And so... Like your dreams kind of evolve and sometimes they grow bigger and bigger. Again, the quote is, don't wait for approval. Not everyone will understand your vision. All right, next one. You are never too old to set another goal or to dream a new dream. Great one. You are never too old to set another goal or to dream a new dream. So here are seven things unsuccessful people do. I'm hoping you don't have many of these that you do. Seven things unsuccessful people do. Hope others fail. Eh, I'm guilty of that sometimes. Hold grudges. <laughs> Hits a little home. Do not set goals. Well, I actually set goals. Try to impress others. Believe they know everything. Use money as a crutch. Make excuses instead of work. So about two of the seven hit me on that one. But again, seven things unsuccessful people do. One, hope others fail. Two, hold grudges. Three, do not set goals. 
Four, try to impress others. Five, believe they know everything. Six, use money as a crutch. Seven, make excuses instead of work. Next one. The struggle you are facing is a test to see if you are truly committed to the life you say you want. Oh, that is so good, isn't it? Don't we all wish our dreams would come to us faster? And sometimes that's what that's what really makes most of us give up. Is it not that it just doesn't come fast enough? If you put in the work and you do this and you do that and you try this, you try that, just not it's not there. It's like, oh, why am I doing this? Why don't I just relax? But that's the test, isn't it? Again, the struggle you are facing is a test to see if you are truly committed to the life you say you want. Do not give up, guys. Do not give up. I always like to end with this one. Be the reason someone smiles. Be the reason someone feels loved and believes in the goodness of people. I always think that's a great one to end with. And with that, thanks for joining us this week on The View from the Front. For those who want to know a little bit more about me, here's the short version. I'm from Knoxville, Tennessee, and I left home to join the Marine Corps at the age of 17. I was also crazy enough to demand that the Marine Corps put me down for guaranteed infantry. I served four years in the infantry, saw enough danger to decide I no longer had anything else to prove, and I exited military service in 1999. I earned a degree from the University of Tennessee in journalism and spent 10 plus years in the news business. I worked initially as a reporter, but then went on to start a weekly newspaper. What can I say? Anyone crazy enough to start a weekly newspaper at the age of 27 is probably a dreamer and an optimist, and I confess that I'm both. I owned that weekly newspaper for nine years, but once it was clear that owning a newspaper wasn't the best path to financial security, I went on to become an author. To date, I've written 11 books, and while I still have my sights set on the tallest peaks in the writing world, I'm now here as well, a once-a-week podcaster who's still in love with both this country and the news. And I see this podcast as a small way to continue serving our country, doing my best to inform and unite us in a time that we're as divided as we've probably been in a hundred years. Well, I've talked enough about me. I really hope you'll consider at least signing up to be a free subscriber. And if you can, consider at some point becoming a paid subscriber. Again, you can do both of these things at my substack, stanrmitchell.substack.com. Again, that's stanrmitchell.substack.com. As a reminder, please be kind and try your best to love your fellow Americans. Let's all work together to unite this country. And also, please try to be a better person each and every day. Try to be kinder on social media and how you interact with others with whom you disagree. And if you've got a dream kicking around in the back of your mind, go after it. If you have that friend or family member that you know you should reach out to who you haven't talked to in a few months, reach out to them. Also, if you haven't already put a rating on some of the social media places that you listen to us, whether it's Apple Podcasts or some of the others, if you could drop a rating, that'd be great. We're trying to get those up because I've heard if you get them up to 30 or 40, then the algorithms take over. So that'd be a great way to help out. Finally, I should mention my books. I've written 11 of them. You can find all of those books on Amazon by simply searching my name, Stan R. Mitchell, or you can find a link to them in the Substack notes. Again, thanks so much, guys, for joining us this week, and with that, I am out.